don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. It's Anthropocene's episode 15. Today we're talking about the 1999 hit, sort of, October Sky. Uh, directed by Joe Johnston. Do you know much about Joe Johnston? Johnston. Joe. Joe. Johnston. Joe. Anybody? No. Orange County? Oh, okay. I've seen the movie. Why don't you wear your pants, Joe? Uh, Joe Johnston, uh, he did one of like the Captain Americas, I'm pretty sure, but more importantly, Joe Johnston did, uh, did, he directed one of my favorite movies of all time, The Rocketeer. <laughs> I yes. freaking love that. So movie. he's no stranger to rockets. Exactly. But I think he did Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and some other. So here's a list. Pretty big movies. Uh, his first producer credit or big producer credit was Willow. Hmm. Um, and then directed Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Rocketeer, The Page Master. Ooh. Jumanji. Oh, yeah. Um, Jurassic Park 3. Which... Yeah. <laughs> Hidalgo, if you remember that. With uh, V.J. Morgenstein? Yeah, riding the horse across the desert. Yeah. Uh, the Wolfman, the like Benicio Del Toro Wolfman. Okay, yeah. And then uh, Captain America, the first Avenger, so the first Captain America movie. So he's been pretty blockbuster relevant for like 30 years. Yeah, he's been around doing a lot of stuff. Um, and then screenplay... By Lewis Kolick. Kolick Kalik. Um, he has done some interesting stuff. I, I was looking at his credits, and this is by far my favorite movie that he's written. Um, he did that Ladder 49 firefighter Walking porn movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Bulletproof, Adam Sandler, Damon Wayne's vehicle Ooh, from the 90s. Yeah. Ghosts of Mississippi, and uh, Beyond the Sea, Kevin Spacey's Pretty Bobby Darren movie. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting list of films that he's done so October Sky 1999 based on Homer Hickam's memoir Rocket Boys yeah um, and Homer Hickam has written a bunch of books uh, he's wrote like a trilogy of memoirs I think all about growing up in Colwood um, and this one was adapted into this film I wasn't sure if Colwood was an actual place because mm-hmm. uh, it sounds so, it does sound like it's made up for the movie, right? Like we'll it's call it some Coldwood. sort of amalgam of places, yeah. But it's it's a real real like, spot, like Pleasantville, right? <laughs> unpleasantville, yes. Sort of. yes. Um, but no, a real place. It's about it's un, just under three hours from the town I grew up in, hmm. um, so it's a little bit deeper into the the mountains than I was in uh, McDowell County, West Virginia, hmm. and so we have. Jake Gyllenhaal making his third appearance, I think, right? Or fourth? Is it? It's his... So we had Day After Tomorrow, Oakjaw. I think this is three. So third time's a charm for, for Jake, playing Homer Hickam. Uh, Chris Cooper as his dad. Laura Dern as the teacher, um, interestingly enough. And then, you know, a couple other not-so-major Chris actors. Chris Owen. Chris Owen, yeah. Of American uh, Pop. Oh, She's All That. The, the Shermanator. Yeah, he's the one in uh, She's All That who has to eat the pubic hair off the pizza. Yeah. Or the pubic pubic pizza. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, And then 
just to, to shout her out because I love her performance, but Natalie Canerday? Canerday? She, she played the mother character. Yeah, is Elsie She's Hedden. awesome in Sling Blade. Yeah. You can always spot her because she's like the only actor in Hollywood with a real southern accent. And it, it kind of shines in this movie because some of the other actors kind of put one on and it's fine, but hers is the one that, to my ear, kind of rang the, the truest. Oh, yeah. And we've got the movie playing on it silently in the background for the first time in podcast history. Yeah, so. we've got the VHS uh, going <laughs> so, on silent right now. So I, I got caught kind of staring. <laughs> and we can talk about this scene because this is a little bit with the car coming through. Um, but yeah, uh, the mother with the, the great accent and then the rest of them kind of trying to do it. Laura Dern puts on a pretty heavy one. Mm-hmm. She really kind of goes for it in this movie. Yeah. And then the... Uh, the supporting actors, his friends, um, except for Shermanator, try to put one on. Uh, so yeah, he can't do it because nerds don't have southern accents. Yeah, nerds are too smart. You only have a southern accent if you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, one of the uh, I don't I can't really explain why, but it's really sort of touching when you find out. I guess we're just going to call him the Shermanator from now on. Yeah, he's Wayne Quentin, right, in the, in the I, movie? I think so. Uh, Quentin Wilson. It's really kind of touching when you find out that he's super poor. Yeah. And, like, living in this shack and with, you know, at least a couple other siblings. And, and so his smartness is hard-earned and his hobbies are, are hard-earned. It's like a weirdly touching scene when you find that out. I don't... It, it's like... It's like you're making assumptions about him that you don't even know until you see where he lives. And it's not like you're like waiting to find out where he lives or anything. No. But it is nice because the rest of the... I mean, Homer is kind of the one that comes from the least broken home. Like, his dad's the foreman yes, of the mine. Yes, that's the boss, yeah. And uh, his mom's, you know, just hanging around. She's a good old-fashioned housewife. And his brother is the star of the football team. And like, he's kind of the oddball, even though he's... He seems to be well-liked and smart enough, I guess. Uh, but then, like you're saying, Quentin comes from this poor family, lives out in this shack. And when he go, when uh, Homer goes to see him, he's like, well, don't tell the others where I live. And, oh, yeah. And he's like, oh, well, they think you're weird anyway, so you could live in the governor's mansion. It wouldn't <laughs> matter. Um, but then the other two, Odell and, oh, I forgot his name, but it's such a good like country name, Roy Lee. Is that, is that it? Something you can't, like that? You, uh, the same way Colewood sounds made up, Homer Hickam sounds made up for a like, <laughs> backwoods kind of story. I did read that they changed his name because in real life he's Homer Hickam Jr., but they made him just Homer for the movie. That way it wouldn't be confusing with Chris Cooper playing Homer Sr. or whatever. Mm. Um, but anyway, yeah, his friends... So Quentin comes from this kind of poor home, and then the other two uh, are both fatherless um, and, and because they they is it both of their dads died in the mine yeah Jesus you hear uh, his friend Odell um, who's kind of the the friend with the least amount of lines in the movie um, his dad got his head cut off by a piece of slate and then they don't tell you about the other one but he's living with an abusive stepfather who's an alcoholic so Homer uh, with the biggest dreams but also kind of the most stable home life which is kind of interesting right yeah and there's there's a weird relationship 
I mean, the, the audience sort of has a weird relationship with Homer's dad because he's not it, he's not just indicative of like a backwoods sort of know your know your place. We're just poor country folk, mining family. Because because like you said, he's the foreman. He's like he's the boss that people sort of the union is coming after. So like it's not that simple. Um, and just a glaring, unless I missed it somewhere, um, it seemed kind of glaring that the, uh, to my reading of the movie, no one mentions the fact that, like the the fact that there's a connection between the fossil fuel industry and NASA. You know, it, like like it's it seems like it's painted as like two completely separate. It's like, oh, good guys and bad guys. It's like, oh, this mining lifestyle is, um, you know, detrimental to human health. It's dangerous. It's not fulfilling. And then like, oh, there's this this worldly thing that you can pursue and, and, and accomplish your dreams, you know. And so they're very starkly, you know, distinguished. And, and at one point, Chris Cooper's character says, you know, we make the steel... Yeah, we make the coal, we, and coal makes steel, and, and steel fills. The country fills, right? But it's like, but they don't make the one more, you know, step leap to say the, the space program. The will space build program, things. yeah, won't we'll build things. Yeah, it's like it's part of one thing, and it just seems kind of unacknowledged. Yeah, and even the fact that when Homer and the boys start making their rockets, or their you know actual rockets, they're making them out of steel, right? And they even have you know, they special order the, the specific kind of steel that withstands... Right, they have the resources to make it because of the mines. Yeah, and it's something... Uh, there's a video that I was watching of, like, older Homer Hickman from 2002 giving an interview, and the interviewer, uh, who's a similarly old guy, talking to him, uh, talking to him about the, the movie, and he was saying that living in, you know, the company town gave him advantages in building these rockets. So in the film, you see that in, like, being having access to the steel and uh, the, the machinery and all that sort of stuff to turn it into these things that he needs, the special kind of nozzle and all that crap. And Homer Hickam in the video says, you know, I think if you tried to build that rocket today, it would cost you, like, $25,000 with all the machining and the materials and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. But because of the time he grew up in, he was able to do it Almost for free, like they mm-hmm. they pry up some railroad tracks to sell, um, for to you know buy the specific you know level of, of metal. But right. other than that, yeah, like everything. Well, first off, not just everything that the Hickam family has comes from this extractive you know coal industry, but then everything that they're able to accomplish kind of comes through the same way. Because right. the only reason this town exists at all is because the mine is there mm-hmm. and they need people to work in the mine therefore they build a town mm-hmm. tell me if I'm wrong the scene that we're watching is is uh, Auk 1 they're shooting the rocket out in the field and the guy from the mines is there and he almost gets fucking killed like, yeah. like just like 10 people the in the machinist movie. right the machinist and Christian Bell <laughs> and he says like right here he's saying something like 
Oh, this. He took me back to the war or something yeah. like that. Like he was a, I guess he was like a fighter pilot or something. Like, I'll help you boys, but only because you triggered my PTSD. Right. Yeah. He, but he says it in like a nostalgic way. Yeah. Like, what the fuck is he talking about? And this film, it, like, I think you were saying that rewatching it, you realize that it, it, it's kind of shittier than than you remember it being. Oh, way shittier. Yeah. Because okay, Jensen and I watched this and. and we sort of said, if you can shut your um, political brain off, it's cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. like everything else. If you can just <laughs> shut right, it off. But just like the arc of the story, if you just take it sort of archetypally, where like you have a protagonist sort of bogged down by circumstance and status quo, uh, his dreams do not line up with his environment he has to work hard to overcome these uh, obstacles and he's kind of the underdog and he succeeds with proper guidance yeah it's cool but you cannot this movie cannot be divorced from the political context of uh, which it itself situates it in in the very opening scenes when you're hearing like the radio commentary of Sputnik and all these things I think the adjective I used to describe this movie was engineer sided. It's it's just the same. It's just the same old stem bullshit. It, the thing what what bothers me is that you know I can I sympathize with the narrative of uh, sort of oppressive environments trying to you know trying to escape to do something that is more in line with you know, kind of what you believe and, and what excites you and that sort of thing. But why is it all in movies and a lot of different types of stories, it seems like it's always embodied uh, or represented as the, you know, the protagonist always wants to do something that's like technological, industrial, like like it could have been as, as satisfying a story if he was a fucking poet. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So... And another thing that sort of goes unacknowledged here is, I mean, how do they sentimentalize the fact that this fucking kid's building missiles? As we're as we're watching it, I was like, this scene, this early scene when they start uh, building by hand this first rocket, would would seem a lot different with different music playing. Yeah, uh, you know, it's just like. <laughs> it was like really dramatic, like dun dun. Right, because it looks like they're building a fucking bomb in the basement. Um, which they are, yeah. You know, uh, but it's so sentimentalized, and, and the only thing that makes this makes it work is the sort of national buy-in of the of NASA of this as a patriotic avenue. Yeah, and, and why are they buying into that? It's not through any sort of spirit of discovery or anything like that. It's the Cold War. It's competition yeah. with Russia. I'm Political race. First. That's what I said. I said, watch that. I said, this is a, uh, this is a prequel to Interstellar. <laughs> yeah, in a lot of ways. A spiritual um, prequel. But I, I, it just makes me think of, uh, it's the same, or no, never mind, it's not the same scene, but it's kind of related. We were talking about um, John Hickam, Chris Cooper's character, talking about how Coal makes steel and still makes the world run and all that sort of shit. Um, when Homer is trying to explain to the first machinist, the uh, Soviet, former Soviet guy who's uh, working in the mine, why he wants to build the rocket, he says, well, when I saw Sputnik, it made me think, you know, 
everyone on the world or everyone else in the world can see what I see and it made it feel like for the first time Colewood was a part of the rest of the world that sort of thing right which is just kind of a like I understand what he's saying right because you grow up in a, a rural setting like this and isolated. I do very much feel isolated yeah. and like cut off from the rest of the world but on the other hand like we were saying the the coal coming out of Colewood and towns like that are are powering the nation powering war efforts and NASA and it's everything all, else. It's already connected and it's shitty. Yeah, and you know, this it, the symbolism of you call a coal deposit a vein, right? That, that kind of idea of like it's literally the blood upon which all this stuff works. Right. Um, speaking speaking of blood, the and blood and oil, there's a scene where they're sort of surveying, you know, they're they're trying to find where the rocket landed. Mm-hmm. And it weirdly reminds me of that surveying scene from There Will Be Blood. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Just, just and... two guys sort of wandering through the wilderness with no regard for where they are. It's like, has nothing to do with them. It's just like the, the same way they don't really seem to give a shit about the fact that they think for a while that they burned a forest down. You know, and all it would have taken was like, oh, we lost our rocket. (laughs) Yeah, and it kind of pissed me off when they. I kind of forgot about that part until I saw it again. But they go to the police station, they show them the rocket they found. It's like an aeronautical flare or whatever. Mm -hmm. So all it would have taken to solve all that is for them to look at the fucking rocket that they found, and they'd be like, oh, that's not ours. The end. (laughs) They don't get expelled or any of that stuff. Yeah, it, it takes. I mean. I guess any sort of Hollywood movie takes it, but you, to enjoy this movie, there are some assumptions about the world that have to be already in place. Yeah. And, and, and the big one is, um, is the moon landing as a symbol of, or, or just the NASA program in general. The, it's the Apollo like national pride. Uh, right. And it, it, if you don't, if that doesn't do it for you, then this movie's not going to do it for you. Yeah. Uh, because because this there's like a dramatic irony built into this because it's 1957 we know that in 12 years we're going to be on the moon and here's a guy fucking with rockets and so there's this inherent dramatic irony to like oh this kid's going to somehow play a role in in this larger story we already know about and so you're just sort of waiting to see how that plays out like how he's going to succeed uh, but you have to accept that that is a good thing that that happened before you can root for him. Yeah. And and, and, and half the movie's about him trying to get laid because of these rockets. <laughs> well, yeah. It, ever, it, like, his friends, except for Quentin, are mainly only concerned with, like, the girls think we're cool now. There's even a scene after they get the police come and, like, take them out of school uh, Quentin's like, well, why would the girls ever like us? We're criminals. And he's like, you don't know anything about women. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, there's a lot of that. And his friend telling him to like take her to go see the wolf man and then grab her tit when she's not yep. looking or whatever. There, there's a lot of that like skeevy old 50s dating culture in Good here. Good old days. Yeah, weirdly this movie, I don't, I don't want to... Uh, I don't want this to come off negatively to the movie I'm going to compare it to, but the feel of it, it, it feels like my dog Skip a little bit. And the fact that, you know, it's a memoir. Yeah. Um, even though I guess my dog Skip would have been like the early 40s or maybe late 40s. Anyway, it just sort of feels like that to me for some reason. Like uh, Willie Morris. Stand by me. Yeah. There's even four guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the railroad tracks, those yeah. scenes especially. 
So yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a sort of nostalgic film, you know. Yeah. You you get the sense, at least I remember seeing this and sort of feeling like it was like like these were my like these kids were like my grandfather. Yeah. Like you know, there before the grace of God go yeah. I. No, and that's a big part of the appeal of this movie for I like I remember growing up it was a big deal because, you know, it's filmed in East Tennessee. It's about people from Appalachia, from the middle of nowhere. Um, so, like in high school, our chemistry teacher, whenever he didn't feel like teaching that day, would just throw on October Sky. Because like, it sort of has chemistry involved and yeah. it's inspiring and all that stuff. Um, you know, it kind of is to be like, oh, here's this, you know, goofy fuck named Homer from the middle of nowhere out in the mountains and he works for NASA and isn't that great and if you work hard you can get there too but it's kind of funny that like another theme of the film is get the fuck out of this place is the mind's gonna gonna run out or you're not run out but you know it's gonna not gonna produce anymore then the town's gonna die and then there'll be not literally nothing here anymore and uh, you see in the in like in the credits when it uh, or right before the credits when it tells you sort of what happens. Yeah, and that cool would the mind shut down in the eighties. Right. So you know it's a real thing, but but I also think it's included in this movie so that that is the problem with the mines. It's not that coal mining is <laughs> that they're not is despicable. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's not that. It's that oh it's it's not viable. It's not a viable future for Homer. Yeah. Uh, because it's not But if it was then Yeah just go mining. Right. If if it was gonna be there then it's fine. And they do, I mean, they do touch on dangers of mining, right? So his dad has... His Chris dad Cooper's rescues someone every 10 minutes in this movie. Yeah, because he knows the mine, like he knows a man, <laughs> as he says. But, you know, Chris Cooper's got a really severe cough, and Homer at one point says something like, all the mom gave him was a, you know, spot the size of a quarter on his lung, and... Uh, there's an explosion. I mean, there are a lot of accidents, but there's an explosion where his dad gets injured and it kills the, you know, former Soviet machinist guy. Um, and you know, Homer feels guilty over that. And that's what leads him to drop out of school for a little while and go work in the mines himself. So I thought, like, I thought it was going to cut to that, uh, when, when he gets the job in the mine, cut to that like Zoolander montage where he's down in the mine. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Throws the pickaxe backwards. I think I think the song is working for the weekend. <laughs> so it's not very well ventilated down there. I've got the black lung. <laughs> but it, you know, it does. It, it touches on a lot. Uh, October Sky, not Zoolander, touches on a lot of those uh, problems with mining. But like you're saying, it never, like many films with many issues, it never really gets to the heart of the problem. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, isn't this horrible? But you know, we need the coal. Right. It does not problematize the industry. It problematizes very particular uh, sort of personal things, which which of course is real, but it's it's uh, not the whole not the whole picture. Yeah. So it's this idea that you have these constructed you know communities that pop up around these coal mines, these company towns, and like in like it's hinted at in October Sky, and like happened in real life uh, in Coalwood after the mine shut down the town did kind of die and there's like a few thousand people living there struggling working at Walmart working for the government you know a handful of jobs that they can still get so it's this idea that these communities that grow up around these mines are only valuable as long as the mine is is producing they don't have community itself doesn't have any sort of intrinsic value it's got to be a community that can also 
produce, you know, uh, the stockpile of coal that can produce or can uh, attribute to this capitalist enterprise. Of right, and, and, and not just to sustain the community, but to contribute disproportionately to the larger industrial system. Like, like you said, the, the things they're doing in these, in these mines are making the country go round. Yeah. It's not. It's not. Oh, let's work hard, and coal wood will thrive. It's let's work hard, barely get by, so we can make steel, and <laughs> so we know. can be a superpower, right? And that that gets to another thing that comes up in the movie, and it's very much a, an issue in real life, which is just the minor pride idea of like friends of coal, and you know, my family's been miners for six generations or whatever it is. And I think a lot of that feeling of pride comes from that that connection of, you know, the the coal we're producing is what America runs on, um, for the most part. Yeah, but, in addition to Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah, in addition to, <laughs> well, just Dunkin' now. Um, America, America gets the runs on Dunkin'. On Dunkin'. <laughs> Uh, so there is that idea of, you know, I, my job is important. My job is the lifeblood of the country and all that. But that pride masks over that other thing that you were just talking about, which is the fact that the job's shitty. It's dangerous. You could die doing it. If you do it long enough, you'll have negative health effects just from inhaling dust and shit like that. Right. That, that, that pride is a rationalization. Yeah. It's a kind of the, the major thing that can keep people you know, in the mines and working, right? That along with the paycheck, because that's the yeah. number one factor. It's pride, you know, of, it's just, it's the pride of making the best of a shit situation. It's not, it's just people dealing with. Or, you know, just being tough, right? The idea of rural people of, you know, we're, we're simple folk out here. We, you know, we can live the tough life and make the best of it and, you know, have fun and raise our families and all that stuff in spite of all this stuff. And, that's that's a great kind of resilient attitude, but it can mask over these issues of well, why is my life shitty? Like, why is there nothing to do in this town? Why is everything bought on company script? Why does every male over the age of eighteen have black lung? That yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, and you were talking about how sort of anti-union. Oh, the film is incredibly anti-union, yeah. and I've kind of forgotten or never noticed that before somehow. And that's, that's sort of a, uh, another kind of strange, almost paradoxical thing where I remember you, you just sort of, in, in my mind, especially now, you associate America, sort of rural America with conservatism and republicanism. And I remember my grandmother, who grew up in uh, the hills of Kentucky, explaining how her mother, my great-grandmother, and all the people she knew were staunch uh, Democrats yeah. and and it had everything to do with coal and it had everything to do with unions and and it's just crazy for me to think about my grandmother who's very conservative being raised by someone voting for, <laughs> voting for a Democrat uh, and, and being pro-union uh, but you see it here and, and it's a very strange I think it's a very strange decision that it, I think we're probably both kind of hinting at that scene where Chris Cooper says, just like outright, he says, screw you and your damn union or something yeah, like that. Yeah, calls them like greedy sons of bitches and all that stuff. Yeah. He basically is the man. He's the boss man, right? Right. Um, 
And so, yeah, he spends a lot of his... Anytime Union comes up, he kind of, you know, spits on the ground before he talks about Unions. Um, I just imagine, like, like the crew making October Sky, like, part of the Union. <laughs> There's a guy, yeah. like, the holding the boom. It's just like, fuck this fucking movie, you know? <laughs> and that's the thing, like, the, you know, the whole Southern strategy of flipping the South toward, you know, being red and all that sort of shit. It does fly in the face of what that whole region supported for a long time and it, it, like you're saying a lot of it had to do with the strength of being in a union and, and this movie makes the unit union to the the villain kind of because the union is going to keep homer from succeeding at the science fair which if it came down to it fuck homer in the science fair i'd rather the union <laughs> succeed yeah uh, one thing i said watching this movie is i think either either this movie is uh, extremely hyperbolic or science fair culture in America has changed drastically since <laughs> 1957. Yeah. It was like the whole town is like invested in this and it's like Homer's a celebrity because he might go to the science fair. Yeah. It's like, I came in second in the spelling bee. No one gave a shit. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, this is the same story. And it's a uh, drunken child abuser talking about how he's going to call the union, which is just, you know, fucked up. Uh, it's works. like that scene in Interstellar where the the uh, the public school teachers are the bad guys. Like, yeah. You, whoever, whoever you want to hate or whoever you want to make a rhetorical point against, you have to make them just ridiculous saying, yeah. you know. But, you know, coal mining unions still, you know, pretty powerful force to this day, less so now, I guess, but when they had the teacher strike in West Virginia, it was a big thing where, you know, to, to go on a strike to support a union is seen now as a very sort of democratic, you know, left-leaning position, but you had these teachers in West Virginia on these picket lines on strike, and right next to them were these old-ass uh, mining, mining union guys there to support them. So, you know, it's just a, it was interesting to see this movie and see unions be vilified so much. And there's the one miner who's kind of, you know, he's that kind of young Brian Dennehy looking dude who, when at the uh, union hall, they're like, everybody who wants to go on strike, say yay. And he kind of like looks down and shakes his head. He's like, it ain't right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Jesse and I were watching that and we were like, wait, who the fuck is this guy? Are we supposed to know who he is? He's just out of nowhere. He's just like, gets this like hero shot. Yeah, I think, and I think that's what it is, is he's supposed to be held up as like the reasonable miner, right? The one that doesn't want to go on strike. But you know, when you're dealing with these corporations that are extremely powerful, I mean, it's a company town because the company owns the town, right? Right. And uh, when Homer's dad, the, the second rocket, first rocket, whatever it is, shoots into the toward the mine and his dad finds it mm-hmm. he says you know no more rockets on company property and they're talking about how they could get off company property I'm like oh that's eight miles away and it shows you like that's the whole right. swath of land that was owned so you run into these huge corporations and this you know absentee land ownership or some millionaire or billionaire in Pittsburgh owns Un- your town unnamed unseen you know, unmentioned you just imagine like the monopoly guy like Scrooge McDuck I, I, I'd like to read the book because I, I wonder how, you know, how much more in depth, if 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 at all, it is in terms of the political situation. I would I would almost guarantee not. Yeah, because 
Because Homer Hickam's the hero of this story. Yeah. And if and if yeah. And, and he works for he you know, he became he went on to become a NASA yeah. employee. Trained astronauts, weirdly. Uh, but there's the interview I was talking about with the real Homer Hickam at the end of it, he's talking about how America needs to get back to these uh, small town values. And the one he kept talking about was keeping your family together, which is, uh, he was like, my parents fought all the time, but I knew they would never get divorced. And he's like, there's one kid in the town that had divorced parents and he was visiting his grandparents. And it's a very conservative. I want to pay attention at the end uh, in that, right before the credits when they're saying what happened it seems like they say the mom like retired to Myrtle Beach yeah like before the dad well the way they they say that she retired in 1979 that his dad died of complications from black lung and mining in 76 I I want to say but I will say he wrote you know a a trilogy of memoirs and I think the last one the second last one was called Sky of Stone and it in it his parents are separated and his mom has left and gone to Myrtle Beach like she says in the movie yeah well, but it's never there, mentioned in the film yeah she's sitting there painting the the mural a mural of Myrtle a Myrtle mural uh, which is like yeah and, 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 and Myrtle gets, Beach I don't think been? so I've been to Myrtle Beach multiple times because it's kind of like it's the Redneck Riviera right <laughs> where you go um, and I can't imagine that being like heaven on earth to me yeah you're painting a mural and you paint like Big Kahuna seafood restaurant or <laughs> yeah. whatever it would be, and you, it's like Biker Weeks. So you got all the <laughs> bikers. You you do kind of feel some uh, sympathy for the mother character here. She's just it's sort of sad when she's sitting there painting and they're like arguing in the background. She's just like clearly trying to escape into this preposterously idealized <laughs> Myrtle Beach. You yeah. Know? Myrtle Beach of the mind. Right. And she, and that's kind of uh, her breaking point, sort of, is when the union is on strike and somebody comes and uh, shoots the window out and the bullet goes into her mural. Right. And she's kind of like, (sighs) the one thing I like, we're just watching a scene of her staring at it after the mind's blown up. And your yeah, husband and might like, be dead. The shadow of the rain was like falling on the painting there. <laughs> and that's the scene where Johnston was like, I am just so creative. I got a lot to Spielberg. <laughs> yes. Uh, I am Spielberging so hard right now. <laughs> but that's the scene where the mom, Elsie, uh, goes, uh, If he got himself killed, I won't cry a tear. Once she had a tear, I swear to God, along. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I love Sling Blade. She's so good. So yeah, Homer's dad almost gets blown up or crushed, I guess. And the reaction is, you know, thank God he's alive. But they they never, he never, let's talk about Homer's dad a little bit because he never questions the importance of what he's doing. And he's very much into being a minor and it's kind of, what he loves most and it's all he thinks about and they have the you know the annoying telephone that buzzes instead of rings that he's always answering and only shows pride in Homer when Homer works in the mine and it's I think that's done pretty effectively uh, when when Homer works in the mine 
and you see kind of how excited his dad gets. Yeah. It's like, oh, I can finally have something to like, you know, something in common with my son. And you see them start to bond. And even though it's reluctantly because Homer doesn't really care, he still cares about, you know, having a, a decent relationship with his dad. And so you kind of feel that tension there. It's it's a it's a well well done, you know, sort of sequence in the movie. Yeah. And, and you never uh, that's that's one sort of mature part I think about the movie is that and I, I guess they sort of set it up in the from the very beginning where uh, his dad has saved someone in the mine within the first five minutes of the movie yeah. and Chris Cooper comes out and someone's like oh you know he's a hero and, he, and uh, Homer he says that's my dad and then he starts to just like tell this guy how stupid he is for you know putting himself in danger and he's like, oh, that's my dad don't ever come back to the mind right and so it it resists you know the movie kind of resists easy categorization of like oh here's a bad guy Um, but again that's on a very sort of personal kind of domestic scale there's no there's no political problem problematization of Chris Cooper's role And, and if anything there's the opposite of problematization it's like kind of glorifying this you know glorifying the man yeah Uh, look how look what a badass this uh, coal mining boss is yeah and even when Homer's friend's drunk stepdad is you know slapping the shit out of him on the street Homer's dad runs over and threatens him and then when he gets in the car with Homer and and his friend he says, "Well, your your daddy was the one of the best men I ever had working for me." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this lucky to know her. Yeah, this is such a weird thing of like you're a you're you know important and a good man and a hard worker as long as you're in the mines. Um, this is a scene where his mom throws the phone out the front door. Weird, sort of seems unnecessary seems like the kind of scene you'd see in the deleted scenes on the DVD yeah that's how I felt about the scene where they throw the Molotov cocktail at their little like observation shack out of the launch pad thing I was like yeah it, it was just clear I guarantee that did not happen yeah you know? and it's only there to be you know over heavy with symbolism right like their dreams going up in smoke right it was just like I remember saying to Jensen when I watched this like that that's just ridiculous. Yeah, I said something similar. I was like, I can't imagine that that is something that someone would think to do. They're like, oh, we we got in trouble because we almost set the forest on fire. I guess we should set this little shack on fire that we built. And they waste their moonshine. Yeah, <laughs> I do like that part. That sort of cut when uh, they they realize they need alcohol, but they can't just like go buy some alcohol because it's too watered down and then it cuts to the guy who we know has a drunken stepdad and he's just like I thought like bad to the bone was going to start playing uh, <laughs> he's like I got you covered and this so Homer's dad gets injured and he has to go into the mines to support the family and because of that uh, Miss Riley Laura Dern's character won't talk to him like walks away from him. As I was watching, I said, "Oh, that's real mature." <laughs> you know, yeah. like, she's like thirty. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, and and just weird that like, how dare you not learn? <laughs> yeah, like, how how dare you go to work to support your family? You spoiled brat. 
<laughs> uh, that was just a bizarre scene. And then later on, she apologizes for it. It's like, yeah, good. That was yeah. really dumb. Really weird. Uh, this is this is maybe the best shot of the film right here, where he's in the mine. Yeah. The looking icon. up, look, looking up at the October sky. See Sputnik go by, and so you have Homer going down, and you see that the mine is literally, like literally and symbolically, taking him further and farther from his <laughs> dreams. Yeah, from space. Yeah. Turn on your light. It's dark in here. It's similar to the scene at the beginning where the men are going down, and the one has the radio listening to the story about Sputnik, and then as it gets farther down, it starts breaking up because he can't get a signal anymore. Yeah. Um, so they, you know, they use the the mine shaft. I think as a and a good symbol, I guess, an interesting symbol in a movie that's pretty heavy handed with a lot of stuff. It's one of the more yeah artful things. That shot specifically is probably for my money the best shot in the movie. Yeah, and this is this is one of the nicest, biggest shafts I've ever seen on film. <laughs> it's nice and dark. <laughs> so yeah, so I. You learn in the credits that the teacher, and, and I guess later in the film you see that she's sick, it seems like an odd side story. I mean, it's it's odd that it's included as a sort of subplot. That seems like maybe the more interesting story of, like, teacher and student while the teacher is dying. And, like, yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of... They do have a lot marginal. of different plot lines going on, I think. Um, they give you sort of just enough about everybody to make you try to care about them a little bit. So, you know, like his friends each has their own little, yeah. you know, they each have their own little uh, chunk of the story. And then Miss Riley's whole thing is this other thing that kind of, and then at the end, it kind of emphasizes that above everything else. So they named the rocket the Miss Riley and she mm-hmm. sees it from her hospital bed and all that. Yeah. Um, which is kind of interesting because it, it seems at times the film doesn't know sort of what the main draw is. And I guess the main draw is just kind of less Homer individually and more kind of the life of this small community and sort of how it's connected and yeah, all that kind of yeah. stuff. And the thing with like... And, and how Homer sort of epitomizes their or embodies their dream yeah. of, of being sort of culturally, nationally relevant. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And I, I kind of I made a note about that of the I think because that's one thing that the film does that kind of goes uncommon and all, but I think is important because it's related to this other union point, which is that the the boys and their rockets are almost universally supported by the community. The only person who doesn't is Homer's dad, who kind of who doesn't kind of but directly represents the coal company since he's their their voice there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of like the company keeping the boys down while everybody else in the community is like no build your rockets we'll help you we'll come watch you and you know they draw these big crowds to come see the rockets get get uh, uh, fired um, blasted off I guess <laughs> blast off it um, so you have the, the people of Coldwood supporting this and I think it is to have something that they can have as a source of pride other than just mining other than just coal you know, something, anything other than this one thing that is the only reason we exist as a community, but it's also the one thing that is always threatening to tear the community apart in one way or another. Um, whereas Homer's pursuits are more kind of long-lasting, less destructive, at least in the way they're presented here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it would have been funny if Homer Hickam in real life goes on and, like, 
works for Lockheed Martin and like develops these. Well, what's uh, the one of the other guys? Drone rockets. One of the other guys works for an oil company. Yeah, it was, it's Quentin, the nerd, yeah. right? Used his all of his brains to work in the oil industry, right? And that's what sort of what I was getting at earlier is how. I want to say I made a very similar point in a previous episode. I don't remember which uh, movie we were talking about, how the uh, story, stories like this of like escaping kind of backwards rural, uh, you know, poverty in some, in some instances, always takes the shape of like some sort of STEM field. You know, it's never like, like, it's like, that's how you escape. And the deeper stories, like, technology is the savior. It is what rescues you from unhappiness, from poverty, from uh, sort of unfulfilling employment. Uh, yeah, even, like, A Beautiful Mind, right, where John Nash is from West Virginia, because he's really good at math, he can you know, go to an Ivy League school and become this important economist or at least have a theory it's important for me. Right, but it's it's economics. never... Yeah, it's like it's it's like your best and brightest. It's like, It reminds me of a book called Excellent Sheep. Uh, it came out like 2011. It's about Ivy League schools and how... I mean, the title sort of says it all. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's your be- the best and brightest from these backwards towns get swallowed it's like the community is proud to have their best and brightest swallowed by this larger culture it's never about you know the best and brightest coming to an understanding that this whole paradigm is fucked up you know and that they should be questioning the powers that create this you know so called backwoods town and this coal mining industry Um, it's it's just I mean, even uh, we were—I can't remember why we were talking about it earlier—but uh, Goodwill Hunting, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, it doesn't really problematize the fact that when he, uh, the, the the math professor he's working with, gets him the interview at all these like giant corporations, and, and there is the scene where he, like, you know, being a smartass, and he like goes on that long sort of diatribe about how. He's, you know, okay, let's say I, I work here, uh, I work for the NSA or whatever it is, uh, the interview is, and he sort of problematizes, like, hey, I'm going to end up killing someone because of an equation I solve here. But later on, he goes back, you know, he's like looking for a job at, at it's not the NSA, but it's some giant corporation. Yeah. Uh, and so ultimately, it's not really problematized that, oh, this, this genius is going to put his genius in service of some fucking corporation uh, the same way in October Sky it's not problematized at all they're like oh here's a clearly sort of motivated uh, brilliant young person let's just hope he gets swallowed up by the fucking uh, military industrial complex you know and that'll be a source of pride for us yeah uh, I don't know if you saw this but I just kind of ran across it um, online there was a story the, the Daily News Journal, which is our paper of record DNJ. in town. And uh, it was a story about how there were, I think, like 10 or 12, something like that, high school students in the county that got a perfect ACT score. Wow. 
and uh, they they're making a big deal out of it. I'm like, oh, look how smart these kids are, and yeah, that's great for those kids, and they'll they'll get to go to great schools and all that sort of shit. But it is a kind of thing of like blindly praising that instead of thinking like, well, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, what happens now? What are you gonna do with that? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure if you ask most of them, most of them, they're like. I want to be a doctor. Yeah, doctors without borders. I want to go into business. <laughs> right. Like whatever kind of bullshit. Um, but, you know, that just, and, you know, they're kids, so I don't know how much you can kind of put that on them, but a questioning of, okay, well, what does this, you know, quote unquote excellence in academics or whatever it is in whatever field you want to go into, what does that, what does that translate to ultimately other than you might get a fat paycheck, right? Well, that's, a, that's like Noam Chomsky always talks about education academic excellence as being really good at following rules <laughs> for yeah. the most part yeah and of course and Chomsky himself is extremely academically successful you know, yeah. even before he was famous he was academically successful uh, so he he definitely calls into question the notion that academic success equals intelligence you know he did I did see a clip the other day of him uh, talking shit about Zizek. Yeah, they've got beef, apparently. I'm just saying that uh, yeah, I don't see the value in what he does. Like, what is the, what's the value in what he's saying? Um, which, you know, some of it, sure, why not? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm trying to, I think the first Zizek clip I ever saw was him just, like, railing against uh, vegans. Pure ideology. <laughs> ideology and he just you know he rails again I, I feel like a lot of his stuff you have to take it sort of with a grain of salt um, and you know sometimes he just says dumb shit I think and that's that's okay I love his quote uh, uh, outer space is literally the stupidest thing <laughs> something like that here's the scene where you go to the Shermanator's house and realize he's in squalor and yet his Nonetheless, exuberant and nonetheless, he persisted. Yeah, yeah. And Homer taught himself calculus or whatever, what it rocket science. Yes. While he was mining and didn't sleep or eat, apparently, um, and didn't didn't die. And that's how he gets him and his friends out of this troubles through math, through the powers of STEM. He was able to prove his innocence. Mm-hmm. But there's a so. I have a couple of books, and they're very different. One of them is Andreas Malm's uh, Fossil Capital, which we've talked about before. And another one is Diane Gilliam, Gilliam Fisher's Kettle Bottom, which is a collection of poetry. And so first I want to talk about a couple of things from Malm that I think are, are related to this that are interesting. And so in, in Fossil Capital, Malm's just talking about the birth of, of steam power and how that's kind of the beginning of, of what he calls fossil capital. Um, and a big part of that is coal because that's how, you know, steam was produced for the most part was burning coal, produce steam, turn a turbine, all that sort of shit. Um, you know, basic power plant stuff. Um, if you ever watch Chernobyl, I just finished it. Um, there's a whole discussion of like, here's how a nuclear power plant works for mm-hmm. dummies. Um, and it kind of gets to the same thing of like, it doesn't use coal. It uses, these radioactive materials that can ruin the planet. Um, but, you know, sidetrack, I am I'm pro-nuclear energy for the most part, but I do 
I do realize it has drawbacks. Anyway, so he talks mainly about Cole in the context of the sort of uh, early in, uh, industrial period British context. But he says some things that I think are interesting. And he's talking about um, a, a uh, commissioner named John R. Lifechild. Leafchild? We'll say Leafchild. Um, <laughs> Lifechild. <laughs> um, so he, so he, elected he, official in Alabama. <laughs> so he, he's talking about the, the actual sort of geography of these, these coal mining sites. He says, uh, hardly anyone ever went there unless involved in excavation, which is still true. Like, why towns like uh, Colwood, why would you go there? Uh, but Leafchild claimed uniquely extensive experience from the coal mines of Northern Britain. Approaching them, a visitor would first notice their swarthy canvas. Quote, you begin to see tall engine houses and vastly tall chimneys breathing into the sky long black clouds of smoke, end quote. Next, he would hear the unearthly sounds, the groaning engines, whistling pulleys, wailing, wailing railways, and then coming closer, passed by the chimneys hoisting into the sky their slanting column of turbid smoke. Always the omnipresent smoke. It was a landscape artificially constructed for the shoveling out of the earth's intestines, or the transposition of underground and surface. The coal fields, as described by Leafchild, increasingly resembled the depths of the mines, black, sooty, gaseous, crammed, as a consequence of turning the downside up. Along his route, quote, everything is sacrificed to the coal. Um, and it, this goes along with a lot of uh, sort of narratives you get coming out of, of areas like this. So uh, the, the writer James Still had a novel called River of Earth that was based around this family in eastern Kentucky living in this coal camp. And that's a big part of that novel is just the description of how filthy everything is. And there's always smoke and soot everywhere. And you can't get it out of your house. It's sort of like descriptions you hear of the dust bowl except with black dust everywhere and you kind of get it in october sky where his dad's always kind of just covered in in coal suit and all the miners or, or even even take it back further with uh, uh rebecca harding davis's life in the iron Man yes is maybe is maybe the first example i can think of yeah because that that predates uh i'm also thinking of dh lawrence and, and women in love uh but Rebecca Harding Davis's Life in the Iron Mills is, is one of the first uh, American, you know, pieces of American fiction I can think of that really sort of calls attention to, like, pollution. Like, the yeah. first paragraph of that, I guess it's like a novella or story, whatever it is, uh, is it's just talking about how gross the, uh, the air is and the sky is, you know, gray and dark. Yeah, and so you get, you know, that image coming through in this description that we have of this British poem, and you see it kind of in October sky, um, and making that connection between sort of the the unhealthy attitudes and, and ideologies that go into this extractive industry and the actual physical effect they have on the environment just from the, even from just an aesthetic standpoint of making everything look dark and dingy and dirty. Well, and that's what's kind of dishonest about that distinction I was talking about earlier between sort of NASA, the NASA sort of engineer technology culture and like coal culture. Like this is the same thing. It's just that uh, NASA hides it better. It, it seems, you know, it's like it just looks cooler. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, NASA exists because of fossil fuels and because of industry and and so you see in the clips at the 
towards the end of October Sky of like the rocket launching in space, the NASA spaceship, um, you know, there's no overcast gray sky, there's no pollution, you know, or it's not shot to seem dismal in any way. It's like glorified. But the same thing's happening. I mean, you see those plumes of smoke coming out of the rocket. Yeah. What do you think that is? And it is the extraordinary amount of fuel a rocket has to burn to yeah. leave the atmosphere, that kind of stuff. Um, but it also kind of reminds me of Amitabh Ghosh when he's writing about petrofiction and petrocultures. And he's talking about oil and how oil both physically and metaphorically sticks to everything and sort of contaminates whatever it touches and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. And this the Lee Chuck guy continues talking in that kind of vein. Um, in this, this excerpt, and he's talking about, uh, or he's comparing gold to coal. It says the two most valuable minerals in the world, right? He says, one, bright and dazzling, the other black and forbidding, one stored up in banks, the other hidden in seams, one the apparent representative of the country's wealth, the other its real representative. The true digging for diamonds took place not on distant shores, but right under the feet of the British. If all their deposits were to be turned into pure gold in an instant, the loss would be catastrophic. And then this this little uh, stanza that this leaf child guy wrote, sort of like a little poem that he put together. Let foes but steal our cash, and then they leave us what we were, brave men. But could they filch our minds of coal? They'd steal our bodies, cells, and soul. Tis coal that makes our Britain great, upholds our commerce and our state. Which is a lot like Homer's dad. Like, we make the steel that makes the country yeah. go round. And, and on top, like, if you want to go even deeper than, like, oh, you have to buy into NASA and the moon landing as a, you know, as a viable sort of, I don't know, as a point of national pride. Even more, you have to buy into the concept of, of a country and, you know, the United States as United States. Um, that's, and that's, maybe shouldn't be taken for granted. I, I certainly don't think so. But theoretically, United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing I just thought of was how um, weirdly present without any mention of it at least present in my mind as I was watching this movie is uh, both World War II and Vietnam they're like conspicuously yes. absent from this movie so we skip so we're assuming that a lot of these guys who work in the mines are probably World War II veterans uh, yeah. and and a lot of the kids uh, like the Ooh. high school kids are, will, will be Vietnam vets. and Homer Hickam served in Vietnam in real life. And so, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Uh, what I was uh, thinking watching this is like, it makes sense that they don't mention it because here's this guy getting a hard on for missiles in high school and then like 10 years later, just like cut to that stock footage of Vietnam, you know, all these bombs dropping on these random villages just killing indiscriminately. And of course, you can't make a feel-good movie about that. No. But it's it's so weird. And, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I've been... Uh, you saw the, the paper I've been reading is about Wendell Berry and industrialism and war. I've been thinking about war a lot and it's sort of the idea of like 
uh, war being latent in domestic life. And, and you see it kind of blatantly in this movie sort of creeping in to civilian life. It's just like the same equipment, you know, that's building missiles and rockets, like clearly is accessible for these kids. And, and of course it's glorified because everyone watching this movie kind of buys into all this shit. But it's if you if you can step back a few steps and look at it, you're like October Sky is really kind of a movie about the seamless integration of and glorification of weapons building. <laughs> you know, like Yeah. And that is I mean, especially with World War Two and the, these you know, massive industrial mobilization efforts, right? It's that's why when people talk about a Green New Deal, they say it would be the largest mobilization of industrial forces since World War Two, because that was the last time we get you know, everyone pitch in and, you know, Rosie the Riveter go and build a bomb for us. So, you know, the coal industry would take a lot of pride in that because that was kind of step one, is you get the fuel, step two you make the stills, step three you build the planes, step four you kill the Nazis. And so coming off of World War II and then Korea right after that, and then right before Vietnam, like a couple of years before, that starts becoming, you know, a problem. This is, you know, in America that's very much, you know, not a stranger to war. It's very entrenched in that wartime ideology um, of, you know, you don't question your love for America. And that's kind of the thing that no one in the film does. It's all taken at a base level of, they all love America, think it's the best country in the world, and then we go from there. Yeah, like the same assumptions that allow you to enjoy Gran Torino and all those Clint Eastwood shit shows we watched are are present in October Sky. It's just not as it's just not as emphasized, uh, mm-hmm. but they're there for sure. And also, well, this is Eastwood Hickam generation, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Korea. Uh, also equally important the character uh, Homer's brother uh, yes. has the worst hair <laughs> high flat top it is untenable <laughs> and he's just sort of like general you know jerk off older brother good at football but just generally an idiot dickhead right. uh, but it is kind of Funnier scene is when idiot dickhead. Yeah, uh, such an idiot dickhead. I prefer idiot asshole. Or like uh, head ass is a good <laughs> description I, of him. I, I like uh, Blake and uh, Workaholics. His go-to insult is, "You're such a dumb idiot." <laughs> so you, I do like the scene where his brother kind of gets the girl. It's the girl that Homer kind of like has boner for the whole movie, and his brother ends up dating her. Yeah. And his response is to like congratulate him, right? It's like, I, uh, so I, gross. I call them uh, biological Eskimo brothers. <laughs> Just kind of weird. And then the girl that sort of has boner for Homer the whole movie, and they end up getting together at the end. Oh yeah, you're kind of rooting for her. Yeah. Um, because she's just a sort of Check forlorn a Confederate flag. Yeah, that's a state flag. I don't remember which one that is. Probably it's probably either like South Carolina or Hell yeah. Mississippi. You know, one of the the cool states. Yeah, <laughs> that everybody loves. Yeah, I kept waiting for uh, 
uh, Chris Cooper's character to uh, walk next door and make out with Kevin Spacey. <laughs> He's totally reprising his uh, oppressive father role. Which is, is this 99? Yeah. Yeah. American Beauty was the same year. That's weird. He's just everybody's daddy in 1999. He's the go-to... Uh, Sort of oppressive father character. I will say I like Chris Cooper as an actor. Yeah, I think he's great in uh, adaptation. Yeah, and he, you know, he's he's good enough in this movie. There, there are some scenes in this movie that are like not well acted. The one we just saw where Homer's in line at the movies, and the guy's like, "Did you see the rocket?" This my, and my it's so yeah, it's so like high school play. It's, it sucks, but right. uh, the. Uh, this movie is extremely well made technically. Like the cinematography is almost disproportionately good to the acting in a lot of places. Yeah, like it's very, very well shot, very aesthetically pleasing. Uh, but yeah, there are some some questionable moments. And it's it's one hundred percent like standard Hollywood narrative design. Oh yeah. Um, like it's definitely made for as broad an audience as is possible. Mm-hmm. This was a, it was a big deal, right? I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I remember it being. I saw this well, like the theater. I remember it being like well liked and and pretty. I mean, it was successful. It uh, it made thirty five million worldwide, um, which was way more than its budget. Yeah. Um. So you know not. Not by any chance, of, or not in any way a flop. Um, and I don't, it, it's not a Disney production, but it feels like it could be. Sort of remember the Titans-esque. Yeah. That PG, family-friendly, uh, yeah. But we were saying that, you know, all these all these problems aside, it does work in this, one of those weird, like, inspirational Hollywood yeah. ways, right? Yeah, like so, you're rooting for Homer. Oh yeah, when he I just, wins the I just, science fair. I just wish that that rooting for Homer didn't imply rooting for the military industrial complex as well. <laughs> yeah. you, know uh, you know that you know this is uh, Eisenhower's era. Yeah, they mentioned it at the beginning in the the radio broadcast where they they dropped the title like it streaks across the October sky, mm-hmm. which is also and I read this and it just made me want to puke. But October sky is an anagram of Rocket Boys, the name of the book. That's cool. <laughs> um, so there's that, but there are there are two at least two scenes in this movie that made me like get misty eyed. One of them is when Homer is telling his dad that he's his hero. He's like, Doctor Von Braun is a great scientist, but he's not my hero. And, and I love that he doesn't say you're my hero because you fill it in. Yeah, you, know, you fill it in for him. And Chris Cooper does the the good job of being the like shithead dad that's just like standing there not knowing what to do with his emotions and then, yeah then once he gets that that wonderful compliment he sort of agrees in his mind he's like he's you're, gonna, you're right I am your hero yeah I am awesome I, maybe I will show up and watch you uh, shoot a rocket into the sky and uh, and then the other one is at the end after he's won I mean when he wins the science fair is nice I'm like a, what did he say to you that was Vernon Lombron it's uh, strangely, a good moment of acting is Joe Hall's reaction to winning. You know, you you get this sort of strangeness. You he he does a good job of conveying the the strangeness of like hearing your name in a context you've never heard it before. In this, you know, being publicly recognized. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's a nice moment. And then when they when at the very end they come back and they're shooting the last rocket. 
you know, and they name it the the Miss Riley, right. and they shoot it, and like everybody in town sees it, and she sees it from her hospital bed, and all that stuff, and it's this big inspirational moment. Um, he lets his dad flip the switch that that fired, push the button, I guess, that mm-hmm. fires the rocket. Um, addresses the whole town, and that's kind of like getting back to what I was saying about uh, the kind of communal aspect of it. Is at the end, he's like, you know, we couldn't have done this without all you people, like mm-hmm. everybody in the town. Um, both giving us direct help in the the shape of, you know, making these pieces for us or giving us these materials, but also in the sort of um, just their support of being like, yeah, boys, do it. Shoot the rockets. Do they sing with the the second place winner, the the girl wins at the science fair? My idea was she she was the first to invent that thing, George Clooney's building in... uh, Burn after reading <laughs> the dildo bike. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's second place. Perfected it, yes. Uh, I just remember she's from Oregon, so yeah, yeah. Here, here's familiar. that moment I was just talking about. He's just like, "Well, shucks, it's mine." <laughs> His performance is just completely all shucks the whole time. Yes, especially when you first see uh, him in the classroom, and he's kind of like zoned out, thinking about space and Laura Dern. No, like, he's thinking about. He's thinking about Poon. Oh, shit. See, I, I was kind of like half watching that scene. That she's talk. The teacher's talking about space. And he's like staring at right. her face. Right, right. Maud or what? That's not her name, but it was Betsy or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then he's like, he's just like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so he does, he does play that sort of, he, he vacillates between goofy, hayseed guy and completely confident junior Scientist, yeah, yeah. Larry just met Werner von Braun. And this is so. Donnie Darko is what, like two thousand, two thousand, two thousand, two thousand one. It was just just after this, yeah. So he went from Homer Hickam to Donnie Darko. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> a pretty big leap. Uh, you know, overall, I think the point you're making is. I agree with it of yeah it's cool that Homer succeeds and like lifts up everybody in this town but at the same time it's in service of military industrial complex yeah yeah all the in this extractive industry and this movie with uh, you know it's made in 1999 so it makes sense but like zero uh, cognizance of fossil fuels or um, carbon emissions or anything like that. Well, I'm not, I mean, Bill McKibben, The End of Nature came out in 1989. Yeah, but, you know, know, mainstream Hollywood stuff is still kind of catching up to to that. Um, I mean, An Inconvenient Truth. Well, like you said, the sequel to October Sky, Interstellar, is uh, (laughs) 2013 or something, 2014. It, it does kind of make it. You see, like Homer Hickam grows up into uh, what's what's his character's name in Interstellar? Cooper. Cooper grows up into Cooper, right? And he's just like got the biggest heart on that ever was for space. And people are like, "But Cooper, the Earth," and he's just like, "Fuck the Earth, right. space. That's yeah. where we need to go." Well, it reminds you of that that sort of very taglineish moment in Interstellar where he says, "We farmers used to." Used to look up, look up, and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down, worry about our place in the dirt. Which is literally what's happening in October Sky. Right, right, yeah. 
and and is and I think is is represented nicely by that shot we were talking about where he's going down into the mine, looking off into space. Yeah, but it, it sort of it also there's a sort of like class angle where what Homer wants to do, just given the nature of how you know the power grid and everything is set up in the the 1950s and 60s, necessarily has to be powered by what his dad is doing. Like, without the coal industry, Homer's rocket dream just cannot exist. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, I'm just reiterating. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's like Homer's way. dream is really to be his dad's boss. Or to be, yeah. like, the next level of his dad, right? right. Like, yeah. you, you mine the coal and that's fine for you, but now I'm going to build the rockets and, mm-hmm. go to, and then my kid will do whatever the next... We'll and also, the bikes in and space. also, those things have nothing to do with each other. I yeah. want to do something completely different from you. That's, I keep coming back to that false distinction that, that the movie makes. And so here's the scene where he's, you're my hero, Papa. <laughs> this Chris Cooper is so uncomfortable in his own skin. It's yeah. like, ugh, affection from my son at the end when he puts his arm around him. And he's very like, he hesitates when he does it. And he's like, oh, okay, I guess uh, I guess it's not gay if it's my son. <laughs> Yeah, I can't stop thinking about American Beauty and his uh, stark and uh, emphatic renunciation of homosexuals in the car, which I will not repeat. It's probably for the best if you you don't. Yeah. Well? Well, I have a have a poem. Yeah, this uh, is a poem. So, shit, I just lost the page. Oh, my God. What a... There we go. I was going to say, what a, what a Bush League move there. <laughs> what a clown move. So, uh, Diane Gilliam Fisher, uh, she's not a very well-known poet, but... Um, I think Which she's is from, to say, a poet. Let's see. Uh, she grew up in West Virginia, and then I think last I heard she was teaching at Ohio University, maybe. Athens, Ohio. Um, but Kettlebottom's collection is about a coal mining town. And then there's, you know, a lot of different, sort of like October Sky, there are disasters that come along and there's an explosion and, and all these sorts of things. And just generally talking about what life was, was like in this kind of poetic voice. And she tells it through a number of different characters. So there's like an Italian immigrant family and all this sort of stuff. <clears throat> this poem I want to look at. Because it brings a lot of the things that we talk about, that we've talked about in this episode, but that we usually talk about in general, um, brings them together. And it's called The Gospel According to Stone Mountain Coal. Stone Mountain Coal came to West Virginia to bring forth the abundance of these hills, to feed the railroads and ironworks and steel mills, which are the blood and heart and bones of our land, the way the Lord fed the multitude from two fishes and five loaves. To feed our country from the coal fields that had lain fallow generation after generation, waiting for such men of faith and vision, faith greater than a grain of mustard seed, who say unto these mountains, Remove, and they are removed. Who say unto these who up say unto those who upheave the natural harmony between owners and workers, a harmony guaranteed by contract signed of their own free will, what the householder said to his laborers in the Lord's parable of the vineyard. Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Hmm. You know, so bringing all these things together. Of, uh, when was that written? 
This is from 2002, I want to say. 2004. Um, so yeah, this idea of these coal companies coming in and saying, you know, this is the, that ideology of like, before we got here and started extracting the coal, this land was nothing, right? This was this was a wasteland before we came and removed all the trees and dug a mine shaft and covered everything in suet and <laughs> slate and all that crap. Um, it also brings in that angle of, of the workers and um, this, as it says, the natural harmony between owners and workers. A harmony guaranteed by contract signed of their own free will, mm-hmm. not thinking about coercion, indirect coercion of, you know, how else can you feed your family? Necessity, yeah. Um, yeah. The coercion of necessity is kind of a nice <laughs> phrase. Um, thank you. And I'm, I'm not very familiar with the parable of the vineyard, so I can't really speak to that too much, but I, I do like the idea of bringing together um, this sort of capitalist view of the world with a religious view and saying, well, these two were to, you know, these go hand in hand. Because it's a lot of, you know, what is still happening in our society of, um, you know, work is inherently good. And, you know, what's even better is when that work makes money for me because I own the means of production and you work for me. And that all gets sort of sanctioned by somehow. It gets uh, sanctioned by and it gets... Uh, changed uh, it's hard to express what I'm trying to say God or, uh, the, the elements of religion get impacted by our own sort of earthly paradigms so God becomes CEO you know yeah. and Jesus is his sort of sort of uh, middle management you know <laughs> uh, he, he had to send down the middle manager to straighten everybody out <laughs> Right, and so he talks to God, and God talks to them, and like he sorts it all. It's like, out. hey, man, hey, my boss. This came straight from corporate. There's nothing I can do about it. God is corporate. Yeah. Uh, it was speaking. That's, of, that's why he's in a cor- corporeal form. Yeah. God. Uh, so one speaking of CEOs, something I found out that was really interesting is apparently after Jeff Bezos saw this film. He was inspired to start a aviation company, um, and then he talked to his friend, the science fiction writer Neil Stevenson, who wrote you know Snow Crash and some other stuff. Um, and so together they came up with uh, the aerospace manufacturing company Blue Origin, Origin, um, and he announced this year that Blue Origin is working on Blue Moon, which is a lunar lander. So a brought to you by the beer. <laughs> I, I got. I hope so. Got a big orange slice like satellite dish. Um, so yeah, Jeff Bezos with this uh, sort of like in the same vein as a uh, oh shit, what's his name? Elon Musk um, of privately owned and uh, Branson, going, Richard Branson, yeah, of, of you know a privately owned corporate sort of space-going agencies. And, or at least he... I don't think Bezos is trying to send people, but he wants to send a lunar lander. Which kind of makes me think, like, what's it going to do? Like, scout out the next Amazon headquarters or something? Amazon 3 on the moon? Yeah. It's... Uh, the weird... Uh, the moon occupies a very weird... Or space in general occupies a very weird political space now. I think Mike Pence was just like, 
giving some speech about how the next people to walk on the moon are going to be Americans. And then Trump was like, it, yeah. we did that 50 years ago. That's bullshit. You know? Even though that was his whole thing of like, we'll go back to the moon. And weirdly enough, so the uh, National Space Agency, whatever the agency is called, I can't remember the name of it, um, was shut down. And then Trump, his uh, administration reestablished it. And Homer Hickam was made like an advisor by Mike Pence to that agency. Weird. It, it had to be because, like, October Sky is one of the only interactions with space that they have. So, like, let's get Hickam. He knows rockets. We'll get him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the full extent. We'll get him. Life. We'll get McConaughey. <laughs> yeah. McConaughey played Cougar. Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. So, in case they're aliens, she can fight them. Mm. And uh, Tim Allen from Galaxy Quest. <laughs> I mean, Tim Allen would love it, right? He's a big right-wing guy, isn't he? Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. He's the last man standing. So, so yeah, that, I think that about covers it. Yeah, I don't know. I think we got to everything I had written down. It's definitely... It, it's one of those movies that everything is... Everything it wants you to think about is on the surface, and then there's some things that you should be thinking about, I think, underneath it. And I'm not talking from this, like, hermeneutics of suspicion angle. I'm saying, like, you need to consider those angles. Otherwise, this movie is just, like, visual cotton candy where you just put it in your body and don't think about what it's doing there. Right, right. Yeah, and again, we'll reiterate, like... That dude's name is Zane Wiener. (laughs) Unit production manager, Zane Wiener. I want my unit produced by Wiener. (laughs) It's our new podcast where we just watch credits and make fun of weird names. There's some awesome names in movie credits for sure. Anyway, I had to cut you off. It was too important. <laughs> Zane Wiener. Mark Zimbicki. Zimbicki. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I think we, we got to it. Like I said, if you shut, shut your brain off and just invest yourself in the sort of personal kind of first person story yeah good for Homer he succeeded if you read this movie in its political context it's just more bullshit to try to prop up this bullshit myth we call America we're just bullshit miners at the end of the day yeah put on our hard hat digging through it for you guys (laughs) Uh, content miners as True Billy Workers Party would say. Um, so, yeah. Um, back to the Miners is the subtitle of this one. Did you see Major League 3 back to the Oh, yes. yeah, I did actually. <laughs> um, so, at Anthropod Tweets on Twitter, available on SoundCloud, Spotify, um, iTunes for now. I guess they're going to maintain Apple Podcasts and since iTunes is becoming or going extinct. Yeah. Along with rhinos and all the other cool animals so uh, next week we're gonna go back to the future uh, talk about a movie from 2012 Gus Van Zandt's Promised Land I think we'll have a lot of similar a, a lot of healthy comparisons uh, to to uh, October Sky because we're yeah. talking about rural extraction yeah. uh, technologies yeah. again 
Yeah, except in this case, uh, fracking and, and yeah. natural gas. And, and maybe, maybe I don't know if you'll have time, but I might try to give another peek at uh, Gasland. Uh, I've I've seen I've seen both of them, Gasland and the sequel that he made. But I might I might look at some clips. Yeah, uh, Zach Fox. Is that his name? Uh, it's not Zach, is it? Uh, no, it's not Zach. It's uh, Josh. Josh Fox. Josh yeah. Fox. Yeah. Say so we follow him on Twitter. Josh Fox. Um, so yeah, Promised Land screenplay by Matt Damon and John Krasinski. So that's weird, yeah. but it, it's I don't know. It, we'll have I don't I don't need to talk about it now. We're going to yeah. talk about the next episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to have a lot to say about that episode. So yeah, that about that about does it. Yep. What's your name? Uh, Joe. John. What is it? Uh, Joe John. Name's Joe John? Johnston. Johnston. Joe. What's your name? Uh, Joe. John. What is it? What's your name? Joe John. Uh, Joe. Name's John. Joe John. What is it? Uh, John. Joe John. Johnston. Name's Joe John. What is it? John. Joe John. Johnston. Joe. John. What is it? John. Joe John. John. Johnston. Name's Joe. Joe John. Johnston. Johnston. Joe. Johnston, 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 Johnston Joe. Joe.